Welcome to the Face Plays podcast. My name is Mel. I'm an oral health therapist and orofacial myofunctional therapist at my practice, The Face Place. Each week, I'll be interviewing a different professional to learn all about their area of expertise and how it relates to oral and facial function, dental health, and the whole body. Let's get to our guest. Tash Duffin is an occupational therapist at her Perth-based practice, Whole Child Co. Tash has a family-led approach in her work with infant and toddler sleep and reflux. Tash is trained in orofacial myology, sleep quality, and pediatric feeding, and she is a certified baby reflux lady. Hi, Tash. Welcome to the Face Place podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today to talk about infant reflux. Hi, Mel. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk about this. Yeah. So first up, I think it's probably a good idea to kind of explain you're an occupational therapist. How did you come to work with sleep and reflux? Like I know that until I started working in these fields, I didn't even really understand what an OT did or all the fields you could get into. So what do you do and why? So it started, I used to work in a completely different field pre-children and then as I had my own kids and my first child who I thought had sleep problems, but the problem was I read too many books and she was just a baby. And then as I went along, then I actually did get some problems with my second and third child and essentially they're all the stuff that we work with, like airway stuff oral dysfunction, all that kind of stuff. And basically nobody knew how to help me. So as I started out interested only in sleep and then as I started to get into that, realised that can't exist in a silo for across the ages, but particularly with our little ones, if they've got oral dysfunction, if they're not feeding, if they're in pain, they are not going to sleep. So it doesn't matter what routine, what hygiene, what settling, whatever you do, you've got to sort out those fundamental precursors, skills, if you want to call them, or situations. And so being an OT, occupation means the things we do with our lives. So it doesn't mean a job, which is what lots of people think it means. So the three occupations of an infant are to eat, sleep and play. And so therefore, I think being an OT is like positions me perfectly to help families in all of these aspects. And so, yeah, basically it started off one thing and then just kept going, wow, let's learn this, let's learn this, let's learn this. And it just means I can help families in lots and lots of different ways. And it's really useful when, you know, like I didn't know this when I started it, but when people, families come to me with what they think is a sleep problem and to be actually like, that looks like it's a sleep problem, but actually let's look at how they're feeding if they've got these signs of perhaps silent reflux or things like that. So it's kind of, it was a progression through a thirst for knowledge, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, the more you know, the less you know. (laughs) Fall down rabbit holes with these things. And as part of that help, like, do you just focus on the child or like, are you supporting the whole family as an OT when there's been some sleep challenges? I guess support the whole family. There's, it can be, you know, there can be lots of emotions around wanting to change sleep or, you know, guilt or that I'm going to, you know, ruin a relationship by doing, as in not me, the, the parent, they don't want to, you know, ruin their bond with their child, all those types of things. So it is about supporting them, about educating them on actually what is normal and that you're allowed, I'm not talking about with tiny, tiny babies, but you are allowed to set boundaries with your children. You can hold them in a loving way. You can support them. You can co-regulate them and you can still produce change. And I guess coming back to when sleep is really difficult, that 
you don't have to do a lot. Well, it seems like you have to do a lot of behavioural and all that kind of stuff, but actually we want to uncover why the sleep's difficult. We fix that first and then change happens. So, yeah, supporting the family unit and, you know, work different families have, I see it, you know, across the spectrum. Different families have really different goals and different wants. Some families love to keep bed sharing, for example. They just don't want their baby attached to the breast all night. So I'll support that. Whereas others are like, I can't, I'm exhausted. You know, it's affecting my my relationship with my husband. We want our child in their own bed. So then we go for that. So it's very much, I call my brand of sleep, I guess, family led because it's not my goals. I don't have a goal. <laughs> it's the family's goal and it's about working towards what they want. So yes, I guess it is working with the, with the supporting the, the whole family unit. Yeah. So today we're attempting to focus on infant reflux, but as we've already been doing, there's such a, there's just so many aspects to it. So we might head off in different directions as we talk, but what is infant reflux? Like what are we even talking about? So reflux is a verb. It is, it's describing the backward movement of a liquid through a valvular vessel. So when we're talking about infant reflux, we're talking about the stomach contents coming back up through that lower esophageal valve up the esophagus and either all the way out where we vomit or just up and irritating into that esophagus or that nasopharynx face and back down. So it is a symptom it alone is not a diagnosis. It is only a verb. It's a description word <laughs> to describe what is happening. So that's where my work comes in. Because it's a description, we want to look at what is causing that. And very much the kind of thing out there that most people kind of hear about is it's to do with that lower esophageal valve being weak. It's And that's the little valve between our stomach and esophagus that should close things off and stop that contents coming back up. Yes. And yeah, thanks for that. Sorry. Yeah, no worries. I'm like, this makes perfect sense to me, but occasionally we use words that maybe listeners are like. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, that's going to be weak in all babies. No baby can walk, no baby can sit up. So, why is it so weak or why is it being forced open in that subset of infants that have reflux or silent reflux? So, whilst that might be you know, I think it's one piece of the puzzle because they're infants and they've got that, they've got a shorter esophagus because they're small, but then why does it happen to someone, not to others? And that's really what my role is to look at. Yeah. What's causing that? Is that where that idea comes from that I've I've heard used at times by health professionals and by parents that all babies have reflux? Is that where that that idea that we have that that weak sphincter and, and like no core support in a newborn baby? Do people kind of just expect that we'll get reflux because of that? Yeah. And, you know, like I guess, and, you know, early on when they're learning their feeding skills, they're not going to be perfect. Even if they're pretty good feeders, they probably will swallow some air somewhere along the line and, you know, a little vomit here or a little spill or whatever. But also then I think that analogy becomes when you've got an infant who has significant reflux, I can think, I feel like that's really almost like gaslighting those parents to be like, it's normal, like every kid does it, like you just got to get on with it kind of thing. Um, and, and it completely ignores, so it ignores the imp- how it's impacting that family. But also the secondary things that can be happening as a flow-on effect from that reflux, so the inflammation that's happening, the pain, the learned pain response and all those kinds of things. So the, you know, essentially the nasopharynx and the esophagus are not designed to have stomach acid in them. So when those tissues come in contact with the stomach acid, they're not happy. 
So they will either, you know, inflame, produce mucus. We get these <laughs> darfadery babies. So it's not only the vomit and the, uh, in inverted commas, a laundry issue, which is a major <laughs> pain in the bum from experience when you've got a new baby. The It's the other stuff that can be happening physiologically, which I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah. So what's going to tell a parent that their newborn or, or older baby is not behaving normally in terms of reflux, you know, that little bit of spit up here or there while they're learning to feed. What's the next kind of indications that it may be reflux or something's not right there? Yeah. So I guess there definitely exists a spectrum and there's certainly babies that are so, so, so upset and distressed and unsettled all the time. And and that's pretty obvious that baby's in pain, but there are, and I've, one of my children was this, she was the happiest, happiest kid alive, but refluxing and vomiting multiple times after every feed for months and months and months like you know the age when they're down on the floor and starting to kind of commando crawl and you'd be turn your head for a second and then she'd be just covered in spew because she'd you know crawl through it and I think nobody listened because she was happy so they were like oh well but what happened is and this is what we can see, like things which we work with, like, like that mouth breathing, that congestion, that low tongue rest posture. So, which we touched on before, if that stomach contents coming back up, inflaming the tissues in the nasopharynx behind the, the throat, the esophagus, the adenoids, the tonsils, all those types of things, if they're causing airway obstruction, then we're going to mouth breathe, then we're going to get low tongue rest posture, whether that was their first or second often as you know yeah I think of it like chicken egg or is the egg scrambled like (laughs) it's it's too hard to know by now yeah yeah so I guess what we would call orofacial myofunctional disorders from very early on so seeing those things like the mouth breathing the low tongue rest posture those types of things and look the frequent vomiting obviously that's a really overt sign but sometimes it's not that but that's not a sign of silent reflux is it Correct. Yes. So silent reflux, it comes back up, but it doesn't come out. And so I guess I would, from orofacial perspective, I'd be looking at what's going on oral function wise, oral rest posture, that kind of stuff. And I guess, yeah, yeah, no, I think that's probably the main things. Yeah. So a lot of the things that you've mentioned there, like regular spewing and being unhappy and unsettled, people would probably associate that with colic. So is colic reflux? Colic is, again, a term for your baby's crying and I don't know why, but it should go away. <laughs> the criteria for colic is quite interesting. You maybe will be, explain it better than me. Well, yeah, isn't it? It's crying for three, for three hours for more than three weeks. Yeah, three, three, three or something like that. <laughs> it's an unsettled baby for that we don't know why they're crying. Again, it's not a diagnosis. It's just a, a catch-all term to just be like, well, I've been told to And very often it does by 12 weeks, and that's not by some sort of magic. But it's often to do with the maturation of the digestive system, whereby a new enzyme that helps them digest more foods starts to develop, which is absent in the first 12 weeks of life. At 12 weeks, they will start to produce this enzyme. And so that's why we can see a big change in their behaviours. So they're now able to digest things more easily. So their tummies are more happy, so they're more settled. So that is generally a good explanation for why colic, in inverted commas, will disappear around 12 weeks. Yeah. So a couple of times we've already said they're like colic and reflux as well, uh, not diagnosis. They're just like explaining. They're like a word given to what's going on. So that's obviously not the end of the story. We need to do more investigation. So what happens next? Yeah. So, well, unfortunately what happens next in a lot of instances is 
we go to the doctor, the doctor says, yes, your baby's got reflux, here, take this reflux medication. The research, and there's more and more of it coming out now, the research definitely says that that should not be the first port of call. And like one of the major points being, and it will probably the major point being that so much reflux is linked to feeding and oral function. And by changing the acidity of the stomach contents, we are doing nothing to actually address why the reflux is happening. We're whacking a band-aid on, changing the acidity of the stomach contents and crossing our fingers, basically. Yeah, so those medications, they lower the stomach acidity? Yes, so they change the acidity of the stomach, which, you know, like there is certainly a place for these medications, your PPIs, your proton pump inhibitors. However, they they shouldn't be the first port of call because of the nature of reflux. And I'm just going to read from the actual pamphlet for omeprazole. So it says, indications and uses, the safety and it effectiveness of omeprazole in pediatric patients under one year of age has not been established. So that is straight out of the drug information sheet. And then there is, I've got the FDA and it's in the States thingy here. The document from the FDA says clinical trials for the use of PPIs in infants has been conducted with omeprazole and a few others. The results of these trials shows that PPIs are not effective in patients younger than one year old for the treatment of symptomatic GERD. However, omeprazole has recently been shown to be safe and effective for treating erosive esophagitis caused by acid-mediated GERD in patients, pediatric patients one month or through less than one year old. So they're talking about it, the medication being effective for the treatment of diagnosed ophagitis, like confirmed by scope, but they're saying that actually these medications that are handed out as a first line of defence, the research says they're not effective at treating it, which is wild when you consider how widespread they're used. They're also, I mean, a lot of them are not actually approved for use under one year and the one that is or even the ones that aren't, when they're prescribed, they're meant to only be prescribed for a short period of about six weeks and they're meant to be monitored really closely and you're meant to be shown how to wean off them. With my clients, that's unfortunately not a picture that I see commonly. Occasionally we see that, but more often than not, they're on them long term and not really aware of how to get off them or when. Why would that matter if they were taking that medication long term? So there's lots of documented side effects. So we need stomach acid to help us digest our food, like it's there for a reason. And, I mean, coming back to it, it's not the problem in the first place anyway. The amount of acid in the stomach's not the problem, it's that it's coming back up. So we need that acid so it affects digestion. There's also lots of documentation about the increased incidence of fractures in child, like of bones in early childhood to do with that. So there's lots of flow-on effects to long-term use of these digestion, that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, so reflux is not a protein pump inhibitor deficiency, right? I think I've heard that, <laughs> that quote thrown out there somewhere on Instagram, but it's a good one. It's, yeah, as you said, it may have a place because people need relief with the baby and the family, like going through all night screaming baby, that's a big deal. But And to break that pain cycle, absolutely. But there needs to be a plan in place and there needs to, the, any reflux treatment should start with a feeding assessment and an oral function assessment by someone who knows what they're looking for. <laughs> that is key. <laughs> yes. And does that matter if the baby is breastfed or bottle fed? No, across the board. So oral dysfunction, and I know you know this, 
I know nothing, Tash. Teach me at all. <laughs> Oral dysfunction will persist if you switch from breastfeeding to bottle feeding. However, it's more comfortable for mum if your nipples are no longer bleeding because baby is on the bottle, but the dysfunction persists. So if they're swallowing air, they're having trouble forming a seal, if they've got uncoordinated suck, that still transfers over to the bottle. So likely the reflux will persist, but I mean, it's better for mum because she's no longer in pain. So yeah, unfortunately, I know that scenario a little too well, (laughs) personally. (laughs) Yeah. So on that note, because my experience involved a tongue tie, is there a relationship between tongue tie and reflux? Yes, 100%. So there's lots of research coming out now showing the link between tongue tie and reflux. So there's a a recent study that looked at symptoms of GI distress and reflux prior to and two weeks following a tongue tie release. So they looked at 84 infants with tongue tie and they found that significant improvement in the both the GI distress and the reflux symptoms two weeks after the tongue tie release. So basically saying that the symptoms were improved significantly post-tongue tie release. So then there's another bigger paper, a 2016 paper with a 1,000 infants. So they looked at infants who had painful breastfeeding, poor lip seal, and these guys were on the histamine blockers or the PPIs, and they really highlighted the correlation between the aerophagia and reflux. So the, of these 1,000 infants, following a tongue tie release, 52% demonstrated complete reversal of symptoms and no longer needed any medication. 19% showed an improvement in like post-feeding irritability and less reflux symptoms. And then there was 28% that showed no change in reflux symptoms. But that is 711 of the 1,000 infants post-tongue tie release showing improvement. And when we look at that compared to what the research says about the efficacy of medication, why are we jumping to medication when we should be looking at oral function and tongue tie? It's not always tongue tie by any means, but it's oral dysfunction commonly and tongue tie is a common cause of that. So what does the tongue need to be able to do in order to feed correctly? Oh, just poke out past the lips. No, (laughs) in joke, in joke. (laughs) No, so unfortunately that is what the kind of, the broader community, who, people who don't specialise in oral function or dysfunction will, that's the test to see if there's a tongue tie. But the tongue needs to be able to elevate sufficiently. It needs to be able to do that peristaltic movement, the posterior portion, so the back portion of the tongue needs to be able to elevate. So it needs to be able to hold the milk at the back and when the infant's doing that suck, 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 swallow, breathe, while it's doing those few little sucks, that back portion of the tongue is going to be able to hold that milk up and then prep them for the wait till they're ready for the swallow. So the tongue needs to do a hell of a lot more than elevate a little bit or only the front elevate or poke out past the lip for milk feeding. It needs The sides need to cup to hold the nipple. So we need a whole lot of intrinsic muscle movement to feed and to control that liquid bolus basically. Yeah, so when they can't hold the the seal, they can't hold the breast or the bottle, they can't hold a seal on there. Do they start breathing in too much air? Is that what's happening with that aerophasia? Yeah, so they'll either, so say the back part of the tongue's not elevating and they're kind of, so it's kind of like as it comes in, it pours down because they can't control it. They can be that, like doing that gulping. Then what they'll either do is kind of grab a little breath out the side where they let the air in or they will 
just pop off and you know push like literally push the breast or bottle away because it's like well that's coming out too fast I don't know what to do let me organize myself okay let's get back on so yeah it's when they don't have enough control over it or they're fatiguing because they're using compensatory strategies then they will be swallowing air basically most of the time and when the easiest way for a parent to know if that's happening is if there's milk spillage if there's some way for milk to get out there's some way for air to get in okay like a tire puncture test (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) yeah And the thing is, you just become so accustomed to it because you, you're feeding so many times a day. Like with the, my child that I was talking about before, like I used to all, like it just was our habit. We would sit down for a feed. I would line the inside of my bra with a towel because she all, like that just came wet. So that was annoying. So we just would line that there and then we'd catch all the milk and then, then she'd go and vomit for two hours afterwards and then we'd suck it again. <laughs> You know, if there's milk coming out, there's air getting in. It's a good way to pick it up. <laughs> I was only just thinking the other day, because my daughter is older now and not on milk feed. She's 16 months. But I was only just thinking the other day about how I used to just have towels. It was everywhere in my house. So it'd be the feeding. I mean, that's something you're probably going to go through, as you said, in those very early days and weeks anyway, because you're trying to coordinate things and there'll be leakage no matter what kind of a scenario. But yeah, I used to have one in the bedroom, one in the feeding chair, one in the living room. Like if my husband took her at any point, he had to go with the towel and he usually just ended up, he was just sure that she was just purposely vomiting on him by one point. Every time he picked her up, she would just vomit like, and he just, yeah, would be covered. But yeah, that's, um, not necessarily normal <laughs> or a good thing to be placing towels throughout your house to manage your child's feeding. So are there any effects like further down the body outside the mouth that a tongue tie might have for feeding and reflux? Yeah, so the with that, there's a line of fascial tissue, it's an anterior fascial line, which just make, means there's connection between the tip of the tongue to the tip of the toes through a line of tissue. And so when there's tightness in the tongue, this is easier to demonstrate on a visual medium, but if you imagine that the... Close your eyes, listener. <laughs> if your tongue is, yeah, is held down to the floor of your mouth and it might even be so tight that it's pulling your chin back, then that can you can feel that tightness. That tightness can present along the whole, that anterior line. So it can show in head preference or head turning preference. It can show in like early head control, like little newborns that can hold their heads up. That is actually not, they are strong. That's normally a sign that they have tension, which could be related to could be, you know, in utero positioning, but could also looking at the whole picture. We would want to look at what their oral skills are like. Is that like newborns that roll really early? Like people are often impressed by that. They have like that tension in their body that just like a lucky band. Yeah. Yeah. They haven't mastered that skill. It's the tension in their body, the heads that hold up. You can see it in even all the way down to the toes, but little ones that have their toes hooked in all the time or their feet turned in. And so you would probably see those things in feeding, like with a preference to feed on one side or feeding better off one side. And then that sort of becomes a self-fulfilling thing because of the supply demand thing. So if they prefer a boob, that will generally start to make more milk and self-fulfills. Yeah. So you can definitely see these things throughout the body for sure. So tongue tie is only one potential cause of infant reflux. Could you explain a couple of the others like pregnancy and birth, things like that? Yeah. So from my perspective, the reflux generally will fall into two camps, I suppose. So one being to do with feeding related and one being digestion related. And so when I work with a family, basically I look at 
over 80 signs and symptoms. I assess a feed, I look at yeah, birth history, family history of allergy, all that kind of stuff, and digestive symptoms, all those kinds of things. And so then I, I can kind of divvy them up into where I think it is. Sometimes it's a combination of both, sometimes it's just one. And so with those digestive systems, there's certainly, I guess, factors that might increase the risk of or the likelihood, sorry, that there's a digestive component to it. So things that we know, like, for example, a cesarean birth alters the gut microbiome. So is there an increased chance that that little one is struggling to digest complex proteins or complex carbohydrates? And then we look at kind of the family history. So that do they have that kind of atopy kind of... Eczema, asthma, hay fever. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. So is that going on? Was there antibiotics in utero or at birth or early on? Those types of things. So, and I guess the other kind of part of the digestive story is that sometimes it's none of that. It's literally just that babies are not small adults and they don't have the digestive capacity of us. They are really good at digesting complex fats. If we look at the composition of breast milk and see how the, the fat, carb, protein content is, it's higher in fats. And so that gives us an indicator of what we were kind of like made to do. Our digestive system was made to do early on. So they're really good at digesting those fats, not so good at digesting complex proteins and complex carbohydrates. And that comes with digestive immaturity. So sometimes it's not allergy and I wouldn't even necessarily call it an intolerance, but there is digestive symptoms there because they're babies. And perhaps what it is, is that, you know, like all babies, you know, have that same digestive capacity, but when you add on little factors like say a cesarean birth or that family history of the eczema, asthma, all that kind of stuff. So just those little building blocks that just make them more and more susceptible to that. Um, And also mum's digestive health. So when breastfeeding, obviously, I always like to think that like mum's pre-digesting everything for the infant that's coming into her breast milk. So if she's got really good gut health and she's really healthy and she digests those more complex proteins and carbohydrates really well, they're going to come through easier to digest for mum. If she has a history of she's been on lots of antibiotics or she just has, for whatever reason, doesn't have super strong gut health and she's not digesting stuff really well, then it's going to come through bigger, harder for Bubba to digest. Yeah, and I think it's more and more it's getting difficult to come across someone who does have good gut health. Like we just have so many challenges to overcome to achieve that. No throwing shade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, definitely not. Yeah, it's such a yeah. What you were saying before is never just oh, if mum has this, then this will happen. It's kind of like a little bit mum, a little bit pregnancy, bit birth, bit antibiotics, bit maybe tongue. Like just and even I think Brenda, who you've spoken to, she's speaks about how birth position as well. She thinks that also has an effect on how tongue tie might present an impact as well. So, you know, different professions, because we all have different eyes, look at things and go, hey, look, I'm seeing a correlation with this. And then that makes us in our clinical kind of assessment go, she would ask about birth positioning and then go, okay, well, then that's setting off alarm bells for me already. Let's look at this. So, yeah, I think each profession has their own kind of little special set of eyes. (laughs) Yeah. So then what do you get involved with? Because like we've been talking a lot about feeding today and we've mentioned that you're an OT. So obviously you have sort of feeding support services available, but you're not an IBCLC. So like how do you kind of fit into the whole picture of the reflux scenario? 
So I guess, first of all, people don't know that it's what it's related to. So they'll come to me as a reflux, someone working in reflux. So then, yes, I have, so I'm pediatric feeding trained and I'm orofacial myofunctional therapy trained. So I can assess and treat oral function or dysfunction, I should say, and I can support feeding. So I'm not into the nitty gritty like an IBCLC by any means, but can work on, you know, positioning and doing like exercises to help with body tension and the getting the tongue moving and suck training and all that kind of stuff to kind of, and I guess also identifying tongue tie and sorting that out is a, is a major thing. So yeah, it's more about kind of like tweaking and supporting because sometimes, and even on the bottle as well, like the education about different, why we might use a different type of bottle, looking at how, you know, the positioning, like sometimes just changing the way that like literally the hold and the flow of the bottle can make a world of difference because, you know, there's just in terms of bottles, there's so much out there that you just kind of like, I don't know, just get that one because it's there. So actually education with the family to understand why they might use a certain bottle. Big one is like you don't have to go up flow rates because that stuff is not standardised, which most people don't realise. You just kind of go and get the next one up but and flow rate's really important. So education, support, helping them pick the right bottle and working on positioning, same with the breastfeeding, so positioning, that type of thing. And then in terms of the digestive component, I'm also not a nutritionist, but what I'll do is I'll identify what or dietitian, identify there is some digestive component. Yeah, and then guide you where to go if I identify that that is a big contributor. Because there's so much overlap, isn't there? If you've identified for yourself that a nutritional or digestive issue might be a problem and you've gone to one of those professionals, you still need to address the oral function that may be associated with a tie or low tone or a birth injury or something. So we're addressing both by looking at the nutrition and digestion as well as the oral function element. You kind of you maybe only get so far if you only look at one side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good. So to end our chat today, a couple of short questions that I'm asking everyone that's come on the podcast. First one is, if you could change one thing about our current healthcare system, what would it be? One thing. I think I would go, well, it's a hard choice between the sleep and the reflux. <laughs> no one's very happy about me only giving one. I'm like the worst genie. In a, I pop out of the bottle and give you one wish. Covers both. That we start looking for the cause of things rather than trying to treat the symptom. Mm -hmm. Okay. That covers everything. Well done. You win. (laughs) No one else is allowed to have that question anymore. Tash has got the whole thing. (laughs) So what do you wish was taught in schools about health? Oh, I think that in like OT, I mean, I can, I've only done OT, so I can't speak to the other kind of professionals that will end up in the orofacial space, but I remember nothing of this being taught ever, <laughs> like not even like mentioned in passing. And maybe that's because this stuff has, since I've been out has become more widespread knowledge base. But yeah, like looking at that tongue-tie is a thing and we need to stop just disregarding it because and things change in healthcare and that's how we get progress basically. (laughs) That is a huge barrier for us to overcome isn't it just the the wider health community being aware that tongue ties exist and they need treatment and that certain people who are better at identifying and diagnosing and supporting that Yeah. And I think it's, you know, like so many of the professionals that I connect with, like in this space, so many of us have got into it 
deeper because of our own personal experience. So it's, you know, like we've lived it. We know it's true. So the research is going to be coming and backing us up. But, you know, a research body takes time to develop. But, you know, like I would say like a huge percentage of us have lived this and, yeah, I think it gives us that that perspective to be like because, you know, you leave uni and you're like, okay, I need evidence base for everything. Where's that? Where's this? Where are these randomised control trials? And then you have a baby and you think, God, I wouldn't want to be part of a randomised control trial. I'm just surviving. <laughs> and, yeah, especially with babies, there's so much that cannot be like, especially when we're talking about safety aspects of things you can't randomize control double blind whatever you want of a safety intervention you kind of feed and not feed two different babies like it just it's just not possible to get it to that like really black and white pinpointed narrow sphere that scientific research expects yes yeah there's human experience involved in all of this yeah yeah (laughs) and so finally is there a book or a podcast or a documentary some kind of form of media that you think anyone and everyone should watch listen read my favourite podcast is, it's not related to this at all, is Mamma Mia Out Loud. I love that. Oh, Anna, hello. <laughs> yeah, hi. <laughs> yeah, they're my all-time. They're my, they're, I'm always looking for their, they dropped their next one, so I guess that's my all That's funny. Yeah, no, awesome. So that has gotten me through many bedtimes. Like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm like, yes. <laughs> I can pop my little pod in and I can listen to Mia, Jesse, and Holly while my daughter goes to sleep. It's great. So how can our listeners get in touch or work with you? So you can find me at on Instagram at wholechildcoau. So you can flick me a DM there. You can find my website, www.wholechildco.com.au or you can email me hello at wholechildco.com.au. And I do lots of, most of my stuff is online. So I am Perth-based and have an in-person clinic once a fortnight, but the rest of the time I'm online and can work with you anywhere you are very good and i can vouch for that that tash absolutely does great work online it is possible telehealth is a thing (laughs) very good well thanks so much for joining me today tash we've feels like we talked about a lot but really just skimmed the surface of infant reflux i think it's such a broad topic but thank you so much for sharing your knowledge thank you for having me listeners can get in touch in the show notes as well thank you thank you Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Head to the show notes if you would like to get in touch with this week's guest. And if you'd like to learn more about oral and facial function or work with me at The Face Place, you'll find me on Instagram at thefaceplace underscore OFM or at thefaceplaceofm.com.au. The Face Place podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Juru people. I would like to pay my respects to the elders past and present.